Before we start today's show, I want to tell you something. This episode features historical reenactments made by a UK-based production company called Darkfield. These scenes are slightly fictionalized, but almost all the dialogue comes from actual historical documents, and we've done our best to make them as accurate as we can. Portions of today's episode were also recorded using binaural audio, so this episode will sound especially good if you wear headphones. And just a note of caution, we discuss suicide, and there are some reenacted scenes involving psychiatric incarceration and some very brutal treatments. What color would you say? Is this green or what? It's like a, it's like a light sea foam. Yeah. Blue. Yeah, that's nicely said. <laughs> yeah. There's certain there's certain colors that kind of like are like a mandatory institutional insistence on optimism. You know what I mean? It's like prescription optimism is this color. Yeah. This is like sea foam perpetuity. You know, you're just here forever. Very well said. Oh, thanks. I'm, this is my poetry hunting yeah, phase right now. I'm just <laughs> just freestyling, you know. I'm Garth Mullins. This is Crackdown. Episode 33. You will not destroy me. I've been thinking about banishment lately. We have this tendency to take something that confounds us, something that bothers us, and just hide it away. Put it somewhere dark and secret where we don't have to think about it anymore. Drug users know this kind of banishment. We know what it's like to get hauled off to jail or mandated into some kind of treatment program. We know what it's like when people try to erase us. And as the overdose crisis gets worse and worse, it seems like this kind of thing is happening more and more. The history of banishment where I live, in British Columbia, Canada, is long and sordid. And a big part of the story is a now disused and largely abandoned facility, Riverview Mental Hospital. At the turn of the 20th century, Riverview landed in the heart of Puiquiclam First Nation territory, uninvited, like a UFO. The government stole a thousand acres on the hillside overlooking the Fraser River, where they built a complex of massive Edwardian buildings to house some of BC's least wanted people. Now that Riverview is closed, it's often used to shoot movies and TV shows. You can see it in The Butterfly Effect, Watchmen, The X-Files, and Supernatural, a show about hunting ghosts. Every town's got its stories, right? Ours is Roosevelt Asylum. They say it's haunted with the ghosts of the patients. Spend the night, spirits will drive you insane. These productions help cover the costs of keeping this enormous facility empty while preventing it from decaying any further. But there's pressure on government to actually do something with this place. And there are frequent calls for Riverview to be reopened, often 
as a place to stick Vancouver's most visible drug users and poor people. In 2013, BC Housing began consultation on a plan it called Renewing Riverview. Two years later, a plan for the land was released, envisioning a mental health care district with doctor's offices and transitional housing, a vision which in 2020 still has yet to be completed. As of today, there are 180... Okay, that's Rosa. My dad's grandma was involuntarily committed to Riverview, twice, once in her 30s and again in her 50s. But growing up, I knew next to nothing about her, and my dad knew next to nothing about her too, just that she lived here for a big chunk of her life. When I was asking you about this uh, last year, um, I feel like I was being a little pushy asking all these questions and you were, I think you were trying to figure out why I was asking them for, and I think I got to one kind of questions where you said, some things are better left in the dark inkwell. <laughs> Do you remember that? I don't, <laughs> but it's I, entirely possible. Well, it was so evocative. I wrote down uh, like the quote, you know, because it's such, it's such a poetic uh, place. I guess now that you don't remember it, it's kind of unfair for me to ask what you meant. Well, I, I certainly was, um, I, I, I certainly did not hide the fact that in our family, um, mental illness was not something that you talked about. In our family, addiction was not something you talked about either. I started using heroin when I was around 19. I tried to hide it, but sometimes it was pretty fucking obvious. Things got distant between me and my dad back then. But our relationship did survive, maybe in part because we stayed in a kind of silent middle place about that. I had no idea that was a family tradition. I know because of discussions with my father that he was fearful that mental illness might be something that's inherited. I think because of Rosa's depression, my father really wanted to try to avoid big swings in mood from joy to disappointment, from excitement to incredible sadness. So we did talk about the fact that the goal for him was to lead a contented life, not necessarily a happy life. For about a year now, I've been researching Rosa. It turns out Riverview kept a large file on her. It's a cold and impersonal document that reveals a lot about the institution, but much less about her. We've had to comb through it, looking for the real Rosa. I hope that by doing this, I could reveal something about the history of banishment where I'm from. I also hope that my dad and I could fill in some of those silences in our family's past. I didn't know exactly what we'd gain from this, but it felt like the right thing to do. Along the way, 
I often worried that my dad might want to leave this story down in the dark inkwell, but I could tell he was curious, so I pressed on. So look at this. Can you describe what we're seeing here, this front part? Well, this front part, first of all, is built to look imposing and intimidating. It is a, a structure with large columns and a large balcony-like roof, but it definitely looks institutional. It doesn't look friendly. It doesn't look like a, a residential hotel. Look at that, uh, that grate over there, that steam coming out of the grate, hey? Yeah. So I guess this whole thing is like district steam heating or something, um, or? That's probably what that is, yep. yep. Huh. Here's what the file says about Rosa's early life. Rosa Mullins was born into a large farming family in Chaikum, England in 1887. She moved to Canada in her early 20s where she worked as a domestic laborer. Rosa enjoyed cycling and going to dances, but she wasn't very social and didn't belong to any clubs. When Rosa was in her early 30s, her husband Barney was away fighting in World War I. Around this time, Rosa started to develop a facial twitch and would sometimes wander off. The details in this file are pretty limited about this time. I still don't know exactly what kind of mental health issue Rosa was experiencing, nor how bad it got, but I do know she was diagnosed with manic depression and taken to Riverview in 1921. Rosa was 34 years old at the time. They filled out a form at Rosa's intake. It contains one of the only direct quotes from Rosa in the whole file. She tells the doctors, you will not destroy me. After just over a year at Riverview, Rosa was declared to be cured and returned to her family. There's not a lot of detail in the file about what her life was like after that, just that her mental health declined again when Rosa was in her 50s. Whatever Riverview had done to cure her, it didn't stick, and so she was readmitted to the institution in 1940, at the age of 53. like uh, just fluorescent lights, corridor with offices and a front desk, tiles that are like 70s or 80s vintage or something. I guess it's a front desk, the intake desk, main desk of the institution where, where she would have first come. And it would have been November First, 1940, when Rosa was admitted to Riverview. Mrs. Rosa Mullins. When Rosa was processed into Riverview, they started by inventorying her possessions and giving her a physical exam. Rosa's own clothes were seized and she was given hospital clothing, probably sewn and mended by Riverview's own female patients, and her other possessions were confiscated and stored. Rosa was given a patient number, 18890. As part of the intake process, the doctors had Rosa's son, 
my grandfather, Ted, fill out a form. In it, he answers some questions about her. History of alcohol? No. History of drugs? No. Whether patient has been charged with any criminal offense or convicted? No. Supposed cause of detention? Worry over husband during the war. Rosa was admitted to Riverview as, quote, mentally ill and unable to govern herself or her affairs, and that she may attempt to do harm to herself. And she went through both the intake process for the declaration of her possessions. Three, height five foot five and a half inches, weight 107 pounds. And her physical examination. Can you also make an inventory of her body? Here in the center lawn building. Abrasion on right elbow. Bruise on right temple. Did you hear that? What? Periods begin at 15 or 16 years, causing no particular difficulty. However, her menstrual period is about due, and she is mildly delusional again. Uh, can you open a window, please? It's very hot in here. Of course. Where they comment um, a few times on her sexual and marital history. Um, when she had her period, they thought she became like uh, more disturbed um, about her marriage. Regarding this venture, she, she states, I quote, and I quote, it has had its trials, I suppose, end quote. Uh, they have been faithful to each other. Um, her two pregnancies were not particularly difficult. Menopause arrived around three years ago at the age of 50 years. Um, sexual education was left to chance. This is some medieval shit, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's um, like, is she a witch? Yeah. Like, can yeah, we yeah. figure out, can we, doctor, get the witch, get the witch sniffer persuivant or whatever, you know? Like, exactly. Ward notes from the time of Rose's intake describe her as uncooperative during physical examination. They ask her, do you think you're mentally ill? And the file quotes Rosa's response verbatim. Just quiet, she says. I always was quiet. I don't make any noise. I guess I'm a sad sort. Rosa was not happy to be going back to Riverview. But after two doctors declared her unable to govern her own affairs, a justice of the peace hammered in the final nail. On November 1, 1940, he signed BC's Mental Hospitals Act, Form A, Section 7, officially declaring my great-grandmother a, quote, lunatic wandering at large. She was involuntarily detained at the institution for an undefined period. This is uh, E3, Ward E3, right here. So this is where, yes, where Rosa would have lived. Little side rooms, social worker office. And then a space that looks like it would have holded two or four beds. It would have held originally more than that. Oh, yeah. yeah. So this might have been six beds in this little space here, right? Certainly. Not much privacy. 
and then more of these little rooms. And this is your door here. Just a, just a curtain to separate you and your six neighbors from the other six neighbors across the way and the other six neighbors down the hall. Rosa probably slept in one of these little side rooms we're in right now for about eight months when she was admitted. And then you can see the building over there, East Lawn Building, where she got moved to, right? That's what that is, I think. Probably a ward that looked almost identical to this. I think one of the weirdest things for me is these odd little places where Rosa's story reminds me of my own life. I mean, Rosa's medical forms and the doctor's notes look a lot like my file at the methadone clinic. Some of the lab forms look identical, but also I've been locked up, processed, and strip searched. I've had my possessions and clothes seized and inventoried, and I've been given a number. The first time, it was 9010003. Oh yeah, this is fucking 100% a jail cell. Like look at this uh, like sink toilet thing made out of metal here. Like exactly what you would find in like any prison in North America. Window that you can't even see out of like it's got a pane inside, the regular outside pane. Yeah. If they were holding her in a place like this, fuck. It's just like jail. It's just like jail. Like I've just been in a room exactly like this. Sounds like rooms I've been in, you know? I think Rosa thought of Riverview like a jail too, because right from the start, she seemed totally desperate to get out. And the file tells that story clearly. So, you know, um, the file also here, they have these things called um, reports of unusual events or escapes in this file. Yes. And there's a whole bunch where Rosa has tried to escape. She's gone out on the fire escape. I don't know if that is there. Is that a fire escape back there? Am I seeing that wrong? This, this, would, this would be here, um, a, stair, a staircase. And it's uh, newer brick than, than the older part of the building. So that could have been an exterior fire escape at the time. All right. Maybe we should go uh, away from the leaf blower. <laughs> She got out onto the fire escape. I think she got out uh, and went all the way to the railroad tracks. I'm not sure where they are. I think down that way. And uh, the the notes record that she's trying to go home. You know, that, that's what she's escaping for. Yes. Well, I can't imagine anybody really wanting to be here unless they were involved in a program for which there was light at the end of the tunnel. And for Rosa, and I suspect many like her, um, a journey to Riverview is a one-way ticket.
I don't really know what Rosa could have done to convince the doctors to let her out. But in Rosa's file, the Riverview staff frequently complain that she doesn't, quote, show insight into her condition. They want her to admit that she's mentally ill and therefore that she ought to be in here. But Rosa refused again and again. It didn't take long before Rosa tried more permanent forms of escape. A ward note written just two weeks after her intake in November 1940 says that Rosa tried to drown herself in the bath. A few months later, the file reads, This patient recently attempted suicide by jumping in a well. She was returned to the ward in a dirty and depressed condition. About 10 years ago, I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. The treatment, EMDR, mostly involved talking. So one of the things I was most curious about while reading Rose's file is what was her treatment? What were they actually offering her? The first thing I could find was occupational therapy, or OT. OT is just another word for work. For women, this would have been cleaning, canning, laundry, gardening, sewing, that kind of stuff. It was a way to give patients something to do and to keep the hospital running. But Rosa's file says she often resisted doing this kind of unpaid labor. Over the years, they put Rosa on chlorpromazine, a drug that the inventor likened to a chemical lobotomy. In 1947, the doctors start something even more intense electroshock therapy. The idea of ECT is to trigger seizures with electricity in some kind of attempt to reboot the brain and clear off whatever the mental illness is. It sounds like quackery to me and like torture. Try as hard as you can to relax. Don't worry, everyone's scared the first time. Pass me the gag. Thank you. Are we ready? Hold her legs. Okay. We're trying to help you. Um, I believe early on, uh, after she was initially admitted, um, my father was asked, obviously following advice from uh, the psychiatrists, uh, whether he would give permission for ECG to, to be administered, and he gave that permission. And knowing my father, he only would have given that if he was had been absolutely assured that, that it was a, a treatment 
that could have been beneficial for her. I'm sure that he was assured of that. Well, there's no doubt. There's no doubt of, of that at all. Rose's file references session after session of ECT, as well as the grand mal seizures that the electroshock is designed to trigger. In April 1947, Rosa has 15 sessions and 15 seizures. A few years later, they give her more sessions. A ward note from 1954 reads, it would appear she's been depressed for some considerable time and that ECT produced no change in her disturbed effect. More than that though, the treatment seemed to be making her physical and cognitive health worse. But they continued with the electroshock anyway, in 1955 and 1956 and 1959. And then something goes wrong. She has a heart condition. Was she tried on Logactin? Yes, but when she was reassessed. She was responsive? Yes and she was returned to the ward. Okay, good. But she looked like a patient with a recent stroke. She had right-sided weakness. Her blood pressure was all right, though. Okay, then. Let's get started. Can you make her more comfortable? Lay still, Mrs. Mullins. You're making it hard on yourself. I want you to relax. Pass me the gag. Okay, doctor, we're ready. A ward note made during Rose's 1959 electroshock session reads, following ECT, resuscitation used, patient collapsed, pulse imperceptible. It looks like they nearly killed my great grandmother, but eventually she came too. At the bottom of the ward note, there's a handwritten warning for the future. It says, no ECT treatment ever. But Riverview doesn't stop. They keep giving Rosa ECT. In fact, they do it again just a little over a month later. Rosa is given seven sessions and experiences five more seizures. It's confusing to me as, as to why the therapy was given after notes suggest it shouldn't be. But uh, it was obviously a tragedy for my grandmother to go through something that, that really was of no benefit. Uh, in hindsight, either when it was first given or later. I can only think that if your dad had seen what it was actually like, he, he might have had second thoughts, you know? I'm sure he had second thoughts, but my father was a man who trusted others, particularly those who were uh, well-educated and skilled in, a, in a, uh, a field where none of us who uh, grew up outside of the medical community would have any knowledge of. So he trusted. (music) 
Reading Rose's file reminded me of all the times that people I know have had some kind of treatment imposed on them, against their will. When the state labels you crazy or an addict, it can take away your rights. It can force you into kinds of help that you don't actually want, even when that help just makes things worse. At this point, I was getting worried the story I was telling dad was just too grim. I wanted to find something hopeful. I was searching for some kind of non-bleak moment Rosa might have had at Riverview. The file shows that she liked to read and to sew, but flipping through the ward notes, what stood out again and again is that Rosa loved to play piano. Um, there was a piano in their family home when, when uh, um, my father was growing up, and, and Rosa uh, came from a musical family uh, in England, so she would have learned piano as a, a young child before she came to Canada. This is, yeah, this is the day room, eh? I guess this is maybe where they might have had a piano. Reckon maybe right here. It's kind of the only space that it would fit. I imagine she would play it by herself, solitary. She seems like a solitary person. She doesn't seem like she would be part of a, a bunch of people playing music or you know, sing along or something like that. Seems like she would choose a time and, and do it by herself, you know? This is Mullins. That's enough piano for today. I'm going to go fetch your medication. You can go and get your case. Here, let me uh, let me show you the visitors log here. Can you uh, can you recognize any of those names? Well, I recognize very clearly. Um, very clearly, uh, my father, uh, Rose's brother, my aunt, who was obviously my father's sister. No, Rosa was visited by my father almost weekly. My father was a, a small retailer operating a radio, television, sales and service business. And in Newestminster, retail hours were opening daily, Monday through Saturday, except for Wednesday. So it was on Wednesday afternoons when my father was, uh, had closed his shop that he was able to take time away from his business uh, to visit uh, his mother. So this goes on for, uh, for pages, you know, this, like, uh, here, you wanna? It does. Um, by what Rose... kind of dates, can you read some of the dates? I sure can. Um, uh, February 22nd, March 27th, uh, May 3rd, May 10th, May 27th, June 1st. All of those days are ones in which um, he visited. What, what is it like to um, see 
this file in this place, like to suddenly have sort of a very fuzzy image come into more focus? The overwhelming uh, sense of, of um, reading the file was about the commitment of my grandfather and my father it was clear that they cared about her very much and did everything they could to make life good for her. At one point, I'm not sure when, Rosa wrote something down. It's the only thing in the file that's actually in her own handwriting. It reads, I'm feeling better now and I'm glad I'm going home. There's so much hope in her cursive letters, but it didn't happen. She didn't go home. And as Rosa grew older, she stopped recognizing her visitors as family. Perhaps this had something to do with all the ECT she'd been subjected to. Either way, her memory was failing. Good morning, Mrs. Mullins. Can you give me Mrs. Mullins' records, please? Here you are, Doctor. Thank you. So, let's see what we have. Uh, seclusive, preoccupied, tearful, depressed, thin, aesthetic, untidy, neglects her appearance, difficult to engage in conversation. Her replies to questions are slow and in a whisper has no insight into her condition. Okay. September 8th, 1952, ECT commenced, eight with eight grand mal seizures. September 26th, ECT discontinued, no change. This, for example. February 12th, 1958, appears quite depressed at interview today and hid her head in her hands. Your usual pattern is to go into a depression for two months or so and then gradually improve. But it doesn't last, does it? I see your son still visits you. He is loyal, despite the fact he won't acknowledge you are ill. August 18th, preoccupied, confused, tearful, depressed. It goes on and on in the same vein. She doesn't know how old she is and thinks she has been here for about two or three years. This lady is quite confused. She tells me that her friend who, and I quote, is supposed to be my son, takes her for drives, but it is not much use as he always brings me back again. End of quote. I would very much like to find some small improvement, Mrs. Mullins, that we can celebrate. Can we start the tape, please? Yes, Doctor. First, 1940. That's fine. Patient 7024, Mrs. Rosa Mullins, age 53. 
This is a recording of your intake interview. Where do you think you are now? Sort of sad, isn't it, hey? What's sad? Oh, I guess I am a sad sort. I was a sad little thing when I was a girl, I guess. Do you think you are mentally ill? Just quiet. I always was Stop quiet. it there. You have Wind it all the way back to the start. Your first intake interview from 1921. Yes. Patient number 7024, okay. Mrs. Rosa Mullins, age 34. Mrs. Mullins, you do know why you're here. You won't destroy me. I wonder if you even remember you're saying here that. Because you're not well. It's very clear and obvious to me that nothing much has changed. Right for the record? Of course. Patient's detention renewed for a period of one year. On May 29th, 1967, 26 years after she was readmitted to Riverview, Rosa contracts pneumonia and dies. She was 79 years old. Riverview has a cemetery on the grounds, but in death, Rosa finally made good her escape. My grandfather had her buried somewhere else, Forest Lawn Cemetery in Burnaby. You know, um, I want you to know that I don't uh, ever take the latitude to judge people from back in that time. I can only look at it through the lens of my own experience. And I know that, uh, you know, having a heroin habit and methadone and all that, that is so stigmatized that I didn't, I kept that a secret from everybody I could up until a couple years ago. You know, I, three or four or five years ago. Like, I, I didn't talk about that. I, I wouldn't judge anybody's decision. Certainly not your dad's to, to keep it quiet. I, I understand. In fact, I probably would have done the same thing. No, I mean, it, it is understandable. And, and in all aspects of our life, we, uh, we are more likely to talk about our successes than our disappointments. Um, I don't think you hear very many... Um, baseball players um, joyfully recounting the games they lost or the mistakes they made. Uh, you'll hear about their home runs, but you won't hear about them dropping a, a ball. The, the best story has both. You know, the best story of a baseball player has the real trials and the failures and then the successes, and so you're rooting for them, you know? And if, this is, if that file that we're holding here is a story of not only Rosa but a whole bunch of our family, the the home run, the, the trial, the success is that people stood by her. People kept going, even though this was probably a really hard place to visit. And, and the whole thing was difficult. And lots of other families turned their back on people in institutions. Like I was saying in the car, mostly women who are locked up in uh, 
mental health facilities or jails don't get visitors. And that visitor log in there goes on for pages and pages. It does. And it's a source of pride for me that both my grandfather and my father's names are on there with huge frequency. Me too. Yep. Me too. I'm, I'm proud to be from them. Well, here's, if we want the picture, here it is. <laughs> Why don't you go stand over there with the file, Dad? Just by the edge of the sun? Okay. Would you do it? You mean over by? Yeah, just where the shadow starts. So that you're in the sun. As my dad and I drive away from Riverview, I think of the words of the Quiquitlam First Nation rep. She told me that the history of this institution has left a stigma on the land itself. But Riverview left a stigma on my family too. Instead of a great grandmother, there was a great silence. But maybe in talking to my dad and walking through those old wards and paging through that old file, I caught a glimpse of her, of what her life was actually like. My grandfather did try to get Rosa out, but in the end, she was out of moves. So Rosa resisted Riverview in every possible way. I hope all of this brought my dad a little closer to his grandmother, and I think it probably brought me closer to him. A few years after Rosa's death, Riverview patients began organizing, and eventually the government shut this place down. As dad signals and we turn onto the highway, the old buildings fade in the rearview mirror, like some sepia tone image out of the past. But the idea lives on. All through the long years of the overdose crisis, more and more people have been involuntarily detained under British Columbia's Mental Health Act, just like Rosa was. Politicians and pundits still dream of our banishment. They call for drug users and people who are mentally ill to be locked up. Some say we should be abandoned on an isolated island. Some say we should be locked in a Navy ship on the Fraser River. In Vancouver, this reflex to banish has a shorthand. Riverview. Crackdown is usually produced on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and tsleil nations. But this episode was created in Quiquiclam territory. Thanks to KFN staff member Jill Stauber for helping me understand a little of this history. Our editorial board is Simona Marsh, Shelda Castor, Jeff Loudon, Dean Wilson, Laura Shaver, Raya Jean, and rest in peace, Dave Murray, Greg Frez, and Sharice Kiwaden. This episode was conceptualized, written, and produced by Sam Fenn, Alexander Kim, Alex DeBoer, Lisa Hale, Liz McDonald, and me, Garth Mullins. Our academic director is Ryan McNeil. 
Academic advising and direction for this episode was provided by Professor Jade Boyd. Thanks to historical researcher Ushin Khan for her research work and helping us obtain Rosa Mullen's Riverview Medical File from BC Archives. The immersive binaural 360 sound historical reenactments you heard were created and produced by Glenn Neath, David Rosenberg, Victoria Eaton, and Anna Sully. The voice actors you heard in those scenes were Casper Michaels, Alyssa J. Donahue, Adam Kadiri, Alexander Osborne, and Sonia Collingford as Rosa. The pianist was Nicholas Brown. Project management by Sam Fenn and Brenda Longfellow. Sound design by Alexander Kim. Thanks also to Kat Wahama for explaining to me the details and the horror of electroshock therapy. Big thanks to Megan Davies and Gertjit Boschma for their guidance and research. Additional thanks to Chris Dooley, Patty Gazzola, Arthur Giovinazzo, Nicole Luongo, and Megan Linton. This episode in no way reflects the opinions of BC Housing, who allowed us access to one of the Riverview Heritage Buildings. Score by James Ash. James found a recording of someone playing the actual piano at Riverview, sampled a few notes, and used them in the score here. Pretty cool, eh? Thanks also to Gary Mullins for reviewing the script to make sure that we got things right. Crackdown is funded in part by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. Additional funding for this episode was provided by the UK-Canada Immersive Exchange. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and keep six.